1968, a lot of Americans were asking the same question. It's just something that I don't understand. Why? Why Vietnam? And a lot of Americans had had enough. If you're here for peace, let me hear your voice. In April of that year, under the controversy and cloud of the Vietnam War, with the conflict still going strong, with tens of thousands of Americans and millions of Vietnamese dead, and a slipping approval rating, and a barely won primary victory, incumbent President Lyndon Baines Johnson made an announcement. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. And Johnson is one of only six incumbent presidents to not run for re-election so far. Giving a deeply divided Democratic Party about six months to come up with a candidate before the August Democratic National Convention. And the protesters? Plenty of time to prepare. Well, how much is it worth to you to call it off? Call off a what? Million? Would you have done it for a million? Revolution? Yeah. What's your price? My life. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today, as part of our series on federal court cases, I've got a little piece of theater for you called The Trial of the Chicago 7. The defendants in the trial say its outcome could decide the future of free dissent in the United States. I think uh, we're being tried with uh, carrying a state of mind across the state border. We're doing quite well. I think we win every single day, but the last. If it wasn't for the law, uh, we'd win hands down because uh, you've seen their case. Uh, it's all never, never land of insanity that only the U.S. government and the city of Chicago uh, can dwell in. And that reporter there said it could decide the future of free dissent. Is the Chicago 7 a trial about protest? Yes. No, not officially. But yes. Uh, officially, though, it was a trial about conspiracy to incite riots. Unofficially, a lot of people say it was a trial about making an example of some very loud dissenters who flooded into Chicago during the August 1968 DNC, the Democratic National Convention. I mean, everybody is allowed to do their thing. If some people storm the amphitheater, they storm the amphitheater. Some people want to... Uh swim naked in the lake, they swim naked in the lake. Other people want to go and tell the cops what we're doing, that's good. The cops want to come down and beat our heads, that's it. I mean, it's all conceived as a total theater, with everyone becoming an actor. All right, let's get into it. Let's shout. Okay, I'm a uh, recently retired professor of law at the City University School of Law. But prior to that, I was the national director of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. This is Victor Good. I was in Chicago in uh, 1968 because I was an undergraduate at Northwestern University. The people that I was talking to and listening to knew that something bad was about to happen. And we knew the Chicago police. 
And many of my classmates said, look, these kids coming in from out of town don't know what they're about to get into. I have an ill-divining soul here, Hannah. Yeah, conflict is coming. And I'm going to get to those kids coming in from out of town in just a minute here. But Victor reminded me of how the country was doing at this time. Of course, John Kennedy's assassinated in 1963. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, assumes the presidency. At 2.38 in the forward cabin of Air Force One, a necessary ceremony. I And he finishes Kennedy's one year, his final year term. And Johnson ran again, right? Yeah, Johnson overwhelmingly won his bid for a proper four-year presidency. I know that this is more than a victory of party or person. So Johnson begins a number of initiatives. Great Society is what he called it, his Great Society programs. But Johnson also begins to escalate the war. From 65 to 68, American troop deployment reached, I think, close to five or 600,000 troops. So it was a massive escalation of the war. And to be clear, a lot of the American public were not thrilled by this. Despite the fact that anti-war protests were beginning in 65, 66, 67, the government was going in the opposite direction. And the government, of course, was led by the president and his party, the Democratic Party. And so with the Democratic Convention in Chicago, all the anti-war groups said, this is a time for us to send a message, especially at the point of the election, that we want peace. We want an end to the American involvement in Vietnam. Nineteen sixty-eight. Everything is coming to a head. Nineteen sixty-eight was, you know, the year when everything was sort of falling apart in America. I'm bringing in another guest. Please meet Jeet here, national affairs correspondent for the Nation. It began with the sort of Tet Offensive, which was an American military victory, but not really a sort of pyrrhic victory, because the very fact that the Viet Cong got so close to like actually like, you know, taking over, had attacked the American embassy really meant that like, you know, people woke up to the fact that they had been lied to about the Vietnam War. And I suppose it didn't help the government's case that this was our first televised war. Like Americans were in their living rooms at night watching this war go down. Adding to the field of the fire, Martin Luther King Jr. comes out against the war. A very hard decision because he was obviously very appreciative of what the Johnson administration was doing on civil rights, but the war got so bad. And then King uh, being assassinated, Robert Kennedy being assassinated, leading to the convention, which was going to be a sort of coronation for um, Herbert Humphrey, various anti-war forces and radical forces, you know, decide to make the convention a real spot for political protest. This is important to remember. The people who showed up to protest in Chicago in 1968 were there primarily to call upon the delegates and politicians of the DNC to propose a resolution to end the war. And the Democrats at the convention, by the way, were intensely divided on the subject. Also, it is worth noting that Chicago had been the scene of deadly rioting months earlier. 
following MLK Jr.'s assassination, during which Mayor Daley gave the police the authority to shoot to kill or maim arsonists and looters. Many politicians wanted to move the convention to Miami, but Daley insisted he would keep things peaceful. So before we get into what went down, I want to establish who is actually organizing and showing up to protest. Because the leaders of some of these movements are going to end up becoming the Chicago 7. Primarily, the Yippies and the Mob. First, allow me to introduce the Yippies. The most vividly imaginative, creatively obvious were the Yippies. This is our third guest, Jean Barr, teacher and chair of the Department of History and Social Studies at the Francis W. Parker School in Chicago. This is the Youth International Party, which had been formed as, you know, today's audience might think of it as almost like a mockumentary um, in the vein of Spinal Tap or Best in Show. See, I can I could hold you off forever just by using uh, uh, theatrical techniques. I'll show you, see. And these are real kind of theatrical street performers. They were sort of real pioneers of something that we see much more commonly now, sort of politics as street theater, politics as mass entertainment. As an example, to mock the convention, they nominated their own alternative candidate, Pigasus, a pig to be president. Why did you decide to become a candidate? But these guys were very serious political actors and they were using the mechanisms of politics as theater and theater as politics and showing just the absurdity that was present in the military industrial complex, in modern racism, in solidarity with the civil rights movement, but definitely with their own agenda. The Yippies are led by two wildly enigmatic people. There was Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman organized an event where he rained dollar bills down on the stock market back in the days when they used to like be down on the floor shouting at each other and the traders were just grasping for the money. And it created this visual of these traders grasping for money that was sort of indelible. You know, they took photos and those pictures went out. So it was sort of like really early propaganda in the vein of using television and media long before digital media of the way that we know it now. And the other leader, that'd be Jerry Rubin. Jerry Rubin is the Berkeley Free Speech Movement. He organized protests at the Pentagon. They would march to the Pentagon famously, and they got way more people than people realized. You know, it was one of the visible moments of, you know, using the tactics of the civil rights movement to get the bodies into the street and show the visible size that they were not alone. And then people who feel like they are alone start to recognize, like, oh, you know, that there's other people who have my point of view, and a movement is formed. Um, he later famously tried to levitate the Pentagon levitating the evil spirits out of the Pentagon. And there's Jerry Rubin running back and forth between the you know, thousands of people out there levitating the Pentagon, which they, he said had been possessed. Speeches. The task of writing and conducting the actual ritual of exorcism fell to Ed Sanders of the New York group, The Fugs. He invoked a wide variety of forces. In the name of Zeus, in the name of Anubis, God of the dead, in the name of Seaborn Aphrodite. So that is the Yippies. The other major movement who organizes to go to Chicago, that would be the MOBE. We should talk about the MOBE, okay? Dave Dellinger, is, they sort of characterize him as the granddaddy. I think of him as one of the hearts and souls of the peace movement of the 20th century. 
Dave Dellinger, by the way, is of a different generation than a lot of the people who showed up to protest in 68. In contrast to the mostly young crowd, Dellinger was in his 50s, and he'd been anti-war since World War II, which back then was not the most popular of positions. And Dave Dellinger, is is he the MOB? Does he call himself that? I'm sorry, I can see how that was confusing. No, the MOB is shorthand for the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam. Its members included Dellinger, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Coretta Scott King, and Dr. Benjamin Spock. Dr. Spock is in like the baby guy. Yeah, the very same. The easiest thing in the world for a doctor or for a doctor writing a book is to scare the bejeebas out of people. And the previous books on child care all were along the general lines. Look out, stupid. If you don't do exactly what I say, you'll kill your child or at least make your child very sick. As a quick aside, everyone, uh, Dr. Spock's Baby in Child Care was literally the only baby book my parents owned. This guy revolutionized the idea of how we parent. Yeah, pro-babies and anti-war. So, all right, here we are. We're in Chicago, and there's a Chicago office of the MOBE that is overseeing this major protest planning, and it was headed by two paragons of youth protest. First, Tom Hayden. He'd been a leader of the Students for Democratic Society, a huge national activist organization. There were a lot of student groups. This was maybe the uber student group, or at least Tom Hayden would like you to think so. Um, they organized much of them at the University of Michigan. And a lot of it was their protest that kind of the same, what we might call the dead white man canon, was being sort of, they thought, shoved down the throats of students who wanted different teachers and different voices and different resources. Most campus professors were white. Most of them were male, not all, but there was a, a certain liberal bent in their politics, but not necessarily in their representation. And so this was confronted. Hayden was a big part of this. Tom Hayden's right-hand man was Rennie Davis, who, by the way, when you look at pictures of these guys together, especially if proudly unshorn Abby Hoffman or Jerry Rubin are around, Rennie stands out as this clean-cut, bespectacled son of a Truman administration economist, which he was. But he was also the real deal and apparently a master organizer and recruiter for the movement. All right, I want to do a quick recap. I've got five so far. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave the Mobe Dellinger, Tom Hayden, and the bespectacled Rennie Davis. Yeah, those were the major organizers of the DNC protests, the Mobe and the Yippies. Though I feel I should point out the MOB was kind of organizing one protest while the Yippies were organizing another. Specifically, they were organizing the Festival of Life. The Democratic Party represented death. So the Yippies decided to hold a Festival of Life during the Democratic Convention with free concerts, workshops in parks, Yippie Olympics, a week-long joyful presentation of an alternative lifestyle. Which advertised, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, come all you rebels, youth spirits, rock minstrels, truth seekers, peacock freaks, poets, barricade jumpers, dancers, lovers, and artists, we're there. There are 500,000 of us dancing in the streets, throbbing with amplifiers and harmony. And by contrast, is the Moab doing a more like stereotypical protest with speakers and lectures and that sort of thing? Yeah, it was just, it was a little... No peacock freaks. No peacock freaks. So slightly different approaches towards the same problem. Yeah, you could say that. 
All right, and you said that the leaders of these groups, the Yippies and the Mob, eventually would become the accused in the Chicago 7 trial. But again, I counted five. So who were the other two? Okay, the other two, um, you had John Freund's and Lee Weiner. These guys are considered the kind of forgotten defendants of the Chicago 7 trial. They were not movement leaders. They were professors. And they weren't even given the exact same charges as the others. Some who have analyzed the trial suspect that what was going on with them is that the government brought them in as a warning to other academics who might consider joining in on protest. So that's our seven, right? But actually, Nick, there is one more critical defendant. Because the Chicago 7, it was originally the Chicago 8. Here's Victor Good again. The Black Panther Party was brought in, even though the Black Panther Party was not a major factor in those demonstrations, they went after Bobby Seale because uh, the Black Panther Party had voiced their support for the demonstrations. Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panthers, a revolutionary group originally devoted to protecting Black Americans from police brutality. It then grew to become a nationwide Marxist Black power movement. The Black Panther Party was not active in the anti-war movement. The Black Panther Party, of course, had their own platform and their own program. Still, the Black Panthers realized that the same government forces that were trying to shut down the anti-war movement were trying to shut down the Black Panther Party. So they believed in coalition work. And so they said, look, you know, uh, we support you guys because you folks are trying to change the government that's trying to oppress us. Not trying to, but has been oppressing us for, for decades. So they supported the struggle without actually being an active participant in the entire planning process. But Bobby Seale is not a member of the final Chicago 7? That's right. He is, at a point, removed from the case. Hannah? Yes, Nick? I think it's time. We've got our defendants. And how did they end up being in a federal trial? That's coming up after the break. But real quick, listeners, I know for a fact that this episode is half as long as Hannah wanted it to be. If you want to see the stuff that didn't make it in, all the fun side ephemera and trivia, just head on over to our website, civics101podcast.org, and subscribe to Extra Credit. It's free. It's fun. You're going to love it. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. We're back and we're talking about the trial of the Chicago 7. Nay, 8. Now, at the top of the episode, Hannah, you said that this was a trial about conspiracy. 
Correct. Most of the defendants were brought up on the charge of conspiracy to incite a riot. But it's also kind of a case about protest. That's the sort of simmering question in the courtroom. What is really on trial here? But to get to that courtroom, we have to start in the streets of Chicago in the months leading up to the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Here is Victor Good again. Richard J. Daley is mayor of Chicago, and some referred to him at that time as the emperor of Chicago. He had been mayor of Chicago, I think, for at least a dozen years. Uh, and not only was he mayor of Chicago, he was head of the county democratic machine of Cook County. And so Daley was a key political operative in the overall Democratic Party. And so, first of all, he was very pleased that the Democratic Party was hosting its convention in his, his city. And he really meant his city. We respect the constitutional rights and the human rights of everyone, but no one will take the law in their own hand or be law and order in Chicago as long as I'm mayor. Uh, so he had uh, both an ego and a kind of a political interest in making everything go smoothly. So the idea that protesters were coming to his town and potentially disrupting this political moment that he was about to have as the organizer and convener of this convention was something that infuriated Daly. So was he planning to stop the demonstrations? To the extent that he could, the answer is yes. The peace groups are demanding permission to march on Convention Hall the night the Democrats nominate their candidate for president. The city says no, that would endanger security. There is a possibility of mass arrests unless the city allows the demonstrators to camp out in public parks. There is nowhere else for them to stay. At a news conference this morning, the mayor read a ringing statement of welcome to the protesters, as if nothing was about to happen. And, you know, when I say to the extent that he could, therein lies the tension between the First Amendment on one hand that guarantees persons a right to petition government, to protest, to demonstrate, and on the other hand, certain limitations that are imposed on protesters so that it's not an absolute right. There are some limitations to what they call in legal terms time, place, and manner in which a protest can take place. Time, place, and manner restrictions. In other words, if there is legitimate government interest to limit protest in public places, like if a protest would disrupt traffic or block the entrance to a building or result in public harassment, then it is constitutional for that government to limit protest. Even then, they have to provide, quote, alternative channels of communication Another way to exercise your constitutional right to petition your government when you are dissatisfied. Now, the organizers of the DNC protests knew that bringing thousands of protesters to Chicago parks and streets had the potential to obstruct the normal flow of things. They knew they would probably need a permit. The city responded by giving them the most limited permit that they could. They limited where they could protest. They steered them away from the actual Democratic Convention. And so the protesters' goal, of course, was to to be seen uh, and to be heard by the people going to the convention. And the city's objection was to prevent that from happening. And so the limitations were put on the protest, and the protesters agreed, basically, we're not going to follow these uh, these limitations. We have to be able to move along our, our 
our own protest route toward the convention hall so that the delegates to the convention would hear what we are saying and see what we were asking them to do. I take one look at the troops in Vietnam. I know what American foreign policy is about. America now, that's America, the Democratic Party. Most of us here didn't come to support McCarthy. The troops are out. Hey, now, Daly had about 12,000 cops and 6,000 National Guard members on the streets, and they were joined by 6,000 Army troops, all to keep protesters docile and away from the convention at Chicago's International Amphitheater. And how many protesters were there total? Well, the estimate at the most pivotal gatherings that week was around 10,000 people, but there were about 25,000 protesters in total in Chicago. Now, far fewer than Abby Hoffman had said there would be, but about a one-to-one ratio of law enforcement to demonstrators. Arrests started to happen on August 23rd. You remember how Jeet here mentioned the Yippies nominating a pig to be president? Yeah, Pegasus, a not-so-subtle way of saying that politicians are pigs. Yeah. And when they gathered in this place in Chicago called Civic Center Plaza to stage this spectacle and release the pig... The cops started arresting people, including Jerry Rubin. That is the beginning. Uh, we are not even on the street yet, although it is certainly our intention to march to the amphitheater in the street because we think that the street is necessary to accommodate this many people. We may be nonviolent, but we're stubborn. And uh, so we are appealing publicly through the press through Deputy Commander Reardon. Now, this does eventually escalate into a riot, correct? It would eventually be called a riot, yes. But I also want to be very clear, initial investigation did not blame the riot on the protesters. Over the course of days, there were clashes with police, many of them violent. Protesters and members of the media were tear-gassed and beaten. Surges of angry, shouting protesters were met with brutal force on the part of the police. This all culminated in the bloody battle of Michigan Avenue. Initially, the police were pushing protesters out of Grant Park, and Michigan Avenue was just a few blocks away from the park. So as they began to get uh, corralled onto Michigan Avenue, uh, some of the protesters began to respond by breaking windows, and the police, of course, responded by escalating their violence against the protesters. So this was the beginning of a series of escalations uh, that ultimately coalesced in front of the Democratic National Convention itself in Grant Park, in which the police made a massive sweep uh, against the protesters, in which, and these, of course, of course, are the famous scenes that I'm sure many of your listeners have seen many times, both in video or in still shot photos, of police wading into the crowds and uh, beating and arresting anyone and everyone they encountered.
At some point, officers pushed a group through a plate glass window and then beat them with billy clubs. And a lot of this, just like the war that these groups had come to protest, was caught on film and broadcast across the country. Again, this is Jeet here. One of the chants that the protesters had is the whole world is watching. And that's, you know, exactly the case. They perhaps maybe even give a sort of broader sense of how polarized the period was. One of the networks, I believe CBS had William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal as the commentators of Chicago. This is what's going on there. And Vidal was defending the protesters. And uh, Buckley was taking the uh, the side of uh, the cops. Oh, I have seen these conversations. William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal, they had these televised debates during both the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, and they were superheated. These two hated each other. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were not Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As, I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that... So this is, this is the state of American political discourse in Chicago in 68. So both inside and outside the convention, there is deep division. There's anger. There's violence. It is a perfect microcosmic expression of the state of dissatisfaction and disagreement in America in 1968. And immediately following this mess, Nick, Mayor Daley claims that the violence was caused by the protesters who unleashed it on the cops. However, President Johnson's National Violence Commission requested an investigation and report on these events. The investigation reviewed tens of thousands of pages of witness statements, thousands of eyewitness accounts, thousands of photographs, and nearly 200 hours of film of the events of these days. It concluded that most cops behaved responsibly, but that those who hadn't needed to be prosecuted. It said that some protesters were provocative and violent, but that most were peaceful. And most importantly, Nick, This report concluded that the violent events that had occurred in the streets during the 1968 DNC was a police riot. So the president received a report saying that this was a police riot and that some police ought to be prosecuted. That's right. How did that turn into eight protesters being charged with conspiracy? Well, based on Mayor Daley's report, again, which definitely indicted the protesters, a judge in Illinois convened a grand jury to investigate protesters and law enforcement alike. This grand jury process took six months. And in that time, Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic presidential candidate, lost to Richard Nixon. At almost midday Eastern time, NBC News projected Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States, when it became evident he had carried Illinois. Final returns may well reveal that indeed it was Mayor Richard Daley's Illinois and Mayor Richard Daley's Chicago which averted a deadlock and a political constitutional crisis of incredible proportions. Johnson wasn't president anymore. The Violence Commission was terminated. President Nixon appointed a new attorney general, and that AG strengthened the case against the protesters. This is despite the findings of Johnson's Violence Commission, despite the fact that these protesters attempted to obtain permits. The Illinois grand jury 
finally decided to charge seven officers with assault and one with perjury, and eight protesters with conspiracy to use interstate commerce to incite a riot. Six of them also with crossing state lines to start a riot, and two of them with teaching demonstrators how to create incendiary devices for civil disturbance. Just to be clear, is that legalese for Molotov cocktails? Sure is. I think that, you know, the the government decided to make an example of this and uh, decided to really prosecute the people who are the instigators of the trial. And then I think it's a very telling point that they also went after the Black Panthers, uh, a real source of anxiety and fear in the ruling class. The idea of like sort of militant black organization that was armed and, and preaching multiracial revolution. And so they have this kind of, um, you know, the leaders of the Yippie, other anti-war protesters and the, uh, the Black Panthers. And they had this big kind of trial and it became a spectacle. A spectacle in part because these defendants knew how to use media coverage and a stage. And they had both in that courtroom. And a spectacle because of who presided over it all, Judge Julius Hoffman. Here's Gene Barr again. He is, you know, thinks he's a liberal, thinks he's a defender of what is good and true in the American way. And he's under assault, right, by this new generation, this new sort of way of thinking, and his own complicity and his own, you know, blinders on what is, what's confronting him, his inability to read the room, as we might say today. Judge Julius Hoffman ordered the family of Bobby Seale out of his courtroom today for sitting in the press section. While the defendant's family was barred, other coveted press seats were occupied by social friends of the court who are not reporters. As the Black Panther Party chairman's wife and five other relatives entered the courtroom, the judge leaned over to a U.S. Marshal and said, find out who these people are. If they don't have press credentials, get them out of here. The family was ordered to leave. Seal jumped up. Judge Hoffman, what about other black people who are not allowed to come into this courtroom? The judge relented, allowing Seal's family to sit in the back row. What the judge did not say is that private arrangements were made for people who are not reporters to sit in the press section throughout this trial. Throughout the trial, Judge Hoffman, no relation to Abby, by the way, is met with these scoffs, mocking, and legitimate calls for meaningful due process by the eight defendants. Go into a courtroom, uh, you're supposed to, like, everyone rises as the judge rises, and you're supposed to pay deference to the judge. Now... The brilliance and madness and genius of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin was that they realized, you know, like, well, what if we didn't? Like, what if we did not respect the majesty of the law? What if we just turned this into a circus? And what are they going to do? Well, what did Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin do? Well, they did things like show up in judges' robes one day. When asked to remove the robes, they revealed Chicago police uniforms underneath as they wiped their feet on those judges' robes. Abby did a headstand on the defendant's table. Jerry Rubin told Judge Hoffman that he was the laughing stock of the world. He called him synonymous with Hitler. Tom Hayden read the names of those recently killed in the war. Abby Hoffman brought in a Viet Cong flag. There was a physical fight in the federal courtroom in Chicago where eight leaders of last year's anti-war demonstration at the Democratic National Convention are on trial for conspiring to incite a riot. A Viet Cong flag was pulled from the grasp of Abby Hoffman, touching off the most tumultuous incident of the trial. Judge Hoffman ruled that he would not allow enemy flags in his courtroom.
this is just utter chaos. You just you don't hear about this kind of thing happening in a courtroom. It doesn't sound real. Well, part of the point is that the defendants thought this whole trial was baseless in terms of conspiracy. The Yippies and the Mob did not plan together and they did not do anything in secret. Never mind the fact that they asked for permits to do it. Or the fact that Bobby Seale had no connection to these groups. So, the defendants believed this trial was political. That what was actually on trial was the First Amendment right to petition. The right to, quote, appeal to government in favor of or against policies that affect them or in which they feel strongly. That it was the U.S. government trying to make a point about demonstrators who do not demure. And the defense lawyers, William Kunstler and Leonard Weinglass, they were with them on that. One final indication of what our attitude is. We've decided to call our legal and political defense committee the conspiracy. We are people whose work against war, poverty, racism, corporate and military power is being called a conspiracy. We're proud of this work. We're going to continue it. The whole premise of their defense strategy was, well, this is already a farce. And if we treat it as if it's serious, then we're kind of like, you know, admitting that there's some sort of plausible claim here. We're conceding too much. Meanwhile, Judge Hoffman is just throwing out one contempt of court charge after another. And in the midst of all of this, by the way, is Bobby Seale. Bobby Seale, who was not a member of the Yippies or the Mob. Bobby Seale, who was not a friend and collaborator of any of the other defendants. Bobby Seale, who was at the Chicago protests to make a speech and then go home the next day. Bobby Seale, who had his own lawyer. Right. He has this long history. He's not doesn't come out of nowhere. He's got a whole persona. He's got a whole political organization. He's a known public entity. Uh, He's got his own lawyer. Right. So he's had his brushes with law over the years. And his lawyer is ill at the time of the trial. He just had gallbladder surgery. And it's a convention of American trials. The judges usually say, oh, okay, well, we'll postpone um, out of courtesy to a lawyer who is ill legitimately. And he was. um, And this judge didn't. And so he said that Bobby couldn't have his own lawyer. And Bobby was like, no, I'm not not going to trial without my own lawyer. That's my right. I have a Sixth Amendment right to have counsel. Out of this, Bobby becomes enraged and incensed, rightfully, by his treatment by this judge. Really, really just in unfortunate terms, he ends up making the decision, long story short, to bound and gag Bobby at the witness stand. He gets basically carried out of, taken out of court forcefully one day and then carried back in, tied to a chair with a gag. Here's Bobby Seale speaking with Democracy Now! in 2018. I was bound up, my head. The only thing you could see is, 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 is my, my eyes and my nose. I was bound up with ace bandages. You know, the ace bandages you put around the knees when you're playing basketball and stuff to tighten up. To, to, that's what I was, and then right around here, all the arteries that's going down. And uh, they brought me in the courtroom, my arms are strapped down. Uh, to the time my legs are strapped to the le- to the legs of the big heavy wooden chair the last day of gagging and when i got in i mean i was losing blood pressure circulation so bobby seal is incensed at the sheer lack of justice and constitutionality and in response to his anger the judge has him bound and gagged three days in a row bobby seal is the only black defendant in the room and he's bound and gagged on the order of an indignant white judge. It was shocking. It was galling. 
and it was really bad optics. Right, so that that was the atomic bomb, right? And then the judge issued a whole ton of contempt citations that were subject of protests outside the courtroom as lawyers around the country flew in to protest against the way the lawyers were being treated. So part of the legal breakdown of the trial certainly was a piece of the Bobby Seale part. They end up severing his case, so the Chicago 8 becomes the Chicago 7. He ends up having his own trial. Um, he's still alive. Uh, he sells barbecue sauce, among other things. The trial began on September 24th, 1969. It ended in late February 1970. Over the course of the trial, Allen Ginsberg was called to the stage. He read poetry and chanted Aum. Timothy Leary was called to the stand. Jesse Jackson testified. Norman Mailer testified. What? Nick, it was theater. And, like June said, it was real. Judge Julius Hoffman issued over 170 contempt of court charges against the defendants. When it came time for the jury to deliberate, Judge Hoffman, on brand, didn't exactly stick with protocol. At the end of any trial, a judge charges the jury. At the charging phase, the judge says, this is what the legal statutes require for a conviction. And if you find that these elements have been met, you can find a verdict of guilty for these these defendants. Basically, the judge says, here's how the law works. Use all the information you've learned during this trial to apply that law and find a verdict. Yeah, but Hoffman didn't do that. Hoffman, however, described the law and charged the jury in such a way so that rather than merely describing the charge to the jury and describing the law, actually, in some ways, began to argue for conviction of guilt. There's no precedence for that at all. In other words, Judge Julius Hoffman sent the jury away with a strong bias. But did it have the desired effect? Well, first, Nick, the jury goes away to deliberate on the trial charges, and Judge Hoffman goes ahead and convicts everyone of his many, many contempt charges that he issued over the course of the trial. And this is something a judge does most certainly have the power to do in the United States. Issue sanctions when that judge determines that someone has been disruptive or disrespectful in the courtroom. And Judge Hoffman, he goes with some serious sanctions indeed. Sentencing the defendants anywhere up to four years in prison. Wait, so before they even know if they're going to be found guilty of conspiracy, they've got prison sentences based on just contempt of court? That's right. The jury came back, though, and acquitted everyone of conspiracy and Freund's and Weiner of all charges. They did find Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Tom Hayden, and Rennie Davis guilty of traveling between states with the intent to start a riot. It didn't stick. The appellate court took a look at what Judge Hoffman had done and basically tossed all the convictions and, of course, admonished uh, Judge Hoffman for the way in which he had conducted that trial. Wait, after all that, after the violence in the streets, the conspiracy charges, the outrageous courtroom drama, did anything come out of it, Hannah? Like what happened to the cops who were charged with assault and perjury? Nothing. Seven acquittals and one dropped case. And we know the war didn't end. It had another five years. So here's my question. Is there a there there 
Or was this case just a loud disruption that didn't change anything? Like the anti-war protests in Chicago in 1968? This is an important question. Does political theater, which I think we can safely say this case proved itself to be both on the part of the government and the defendants, result in change? Well, I think that the basic lesson, which I think that the defendants all shared, um, was an awareness of that the legal system is not just about laws, that there's also a sort of politics implicit in it, and that the consequences of a legal trial aren't just like the decisions that are made, but it's actually like it is it got a huge amount of attention and changed a lot of attitudes uh, and polarized a lot of people in different directions because the defendants realized that um, the courtroom is a stage. The courtroom is an avenue of political theater and that there are ways in which you can use the courtroom to reach far wider audience than otherwise. And I think that, you know, there have always been kind of significant, important trials, but I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of one where the courtroom was used so effectively to convey the message that the defendants wanted. And as far as law and policy goes, I asked Victor Good about this and he said, you know what, no, no laws changed following the riots or the case. But he also brought the whole thing back to the reason these eight men ended up in court to begin with. Protest, whether they were allowed to do it, where they were allowed to do it, and how they were allowed to do it. What it did do is it caused other courts and other jurisdictions to say, well, look, maybe we need to apply this concept of time, place, and manner and where your demonstrations can take place in a more balanced way. So we don't use these permits to create conflict and to create a situation where there's police abuse. Instead, let's try to allow the First Amendment to have its flowering and to have its space. So this is the last thing, Hannah, and we haven't actually called it out up until this point. You got thousands of young, angry protesters taken to the streets because of their dissatisfaction with violence, with government. Brutal police violence, questions about constitutional rights, a massive divide in a party. (laughs) So many of the events and problems that led to the Chicago 7 slash 8 trial are happening in America today, over 50 years later. So did we actually learn anything from the wildness and spectacle and violence of the 1960s or of this trial? Or, I guess... Can we learn anything looking back at it today? It's funny you should ask. Victor and I had this moment at the end of the interview when we were speaking about constitutional rights, about the government's role in upholding them, about our role in making sure the government does. And per usual, Nick, when I talk about the weight of fundamental rights, I get a little bit overwhelmed. It really means something to me. I feel it on a deep level. And when I mentioned this to Victor... He essentially said, well, that's pretty much the whole point. That was the point in 1968, and that is the point now. This is something that we have to feel. We have to not just think about it. We have to feel it. Because when you feel it, it makes it real. It causes you to look around at things a little bit differently than you might have before. My experience in 1968, both in campus protests and demonstrations and being part of anti-war demonstrations and movements, caused me to change my career approach. When I went to law school, 
I joined the organization called the National Conference of Black Lawyers. And I joined them because their declaration of commitment was to be the legal arm of the Black Revolutionary Movement. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what my life was going to become. But I knew that I wanted my life to become a life of meaning. I knew I wanted to have something to do with social justice. I knew I couldn't go back to the world that my parents grew up in. Uh, I knew that being a lawyer could be a tool in some ways. And of course, as a lawyer, I quickly learned the limitations of that tool as well. But I hope as some young people hear this podcast and many, many others, many, many others, I don't, I don't claim to be unique in that respect, that they will begin to ask some of the same questions of who am I and where are we going as I began to ask in 1968. And let me underscore that, not just who am I and where am I going, but who am I and where are we going? That does it for the Chicago 7, Nate 8, here on Civics 101. Special thanks to the American Bar Association for working with us on this series. If you want a good dramatization of the trial of the Chicago 7, Nick and I watched the Aaron Sorkin movie of the same name, and although Jeet here will rightfully tell you that he did indeed 90s Sorkinize the series of events behind the trial of the Chicago 7, it's still a pretty good movie, and it's got Mark Rylance in it, which should be argument enough. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Jackie Fulton is our producer. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It actually means a lot to us, and it's how you can tell us what you think. Music in this episode by Viskid, Lars Erickson, Ketza, Ian Luxton, Vincent Vega, Anna Moya, Blacktop Banks, and Elliot Holmes. You can get transcripts, additional resources, and everything else we have ever made at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.